0: Lord, we're, again, thankful for the Word of God that leads us into a deeper understanding of you. And that's what we are seeking to do today, is to understand you better through the parallels between the Exodus and the Advent movement. So, Father, we uh, turn again to the Word of God and seek to have a deeper relationship with you Through our study today, may your Holy Spirit be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're going to continue our study by uh, kind of backing up to where we were yesterday. We were talking a little bit about um, a couple of things. We've been looking at the uh, parallels with the movement of the children of Israel out of Egypt. And as I pointed out, we've been uh, studying the material from Taylor G. Bunch and his study they presented to the Battle Creek Church um, many years ago. And as we've been going through parts of it, the whole document's 250 pages, and we're not going through all 250 pages here. But I'm seeking to hit some highlights along the way and... I'm trying to do it. He doesn't do it all in chronological order, which is tough anyway, because of, you know, you get going with a point, and then you kind of tie that into something else, and it's not easy to be able to do that in the first place. But he hits a few highlights. I mean, I'm hitting a few highlights, but trying to keep them in chronological order. And, oh, I didn't bring my my, uh, note in here. I am... Anybody who attends the class, whether the whole class or part of the class, I'm going to send you the whole document so that you can benefit from that. And make sure that you get your name on the list if you don't have your name on the list already uh, before you leave today so that I can mail that to you in time. It's, uh, it's too long to do the whole thing, and I'm going to provide it for you um, by mailing it to you. But uh, we have been talking about some of the journey out of Egypt we started first of all by talking about some of the the experiences of the children of Israel in captivity and getting out of captivity through the experience of the judgments on Pharaoh and his and his people and that whole experience there and we drew the parallels and so on and yesterday we we're talking about a little more about the journey out of um, Egypt, and we started getting into that, and uh, we talked about the Sabbath, the law on the Sabbath, we talked about a uh, a number of different things, but today, I want to pick up where we left off yesterday, and we were just really getting into the beginning of the journey out of Egypt, and that's what I want to share with you now, just trying to find my place here. Yeah, exactly. Um, it started on, uh, we, we're we starting on, I think, 106. And we were talking a little bit about that and got on a little farther there. And I stopped just about the area of the Lord's plan, which I believe is 107. Okay? And uh, where we were. And again, we're just hitting the, the highlights along the way. The last thing we shared yesterday was being reminded of the emphasis uh, that God places in on obedience to Him, but in response to faith and faith and the law and the role of them, we'll look at that a little bit more in a in a uh, a little later today, but God never intended that Israel would fight their way into the promised land or conquer it by warfare. You know, we really think about this and as we've, I know that as I've looked back sometimes to the children of Israel coming through, we think about them getting out there and they were getting ready for a big fight and they were going to have to fight against the the pagans that were in Canaan land, and all of that, that that meant. But the truth of the matter is, God was trying to help them to understand that he was big enough to fight for them. And this was a very difficult concept for them to learn, and it's a very difficult concept for human beings like you and me to learn. I'm used to being in charge of my life. All right? And, And that's just the way it is. Lori likes to say to me, it's a power thing, isn't it? <laughs> and I turn around to do the same thing to her because she has the same challenge in her life. She likes to be in control of things. Even though she's more of a sanguine than a choleric melancholy like me, she still has enough choleric in her that she likes to be in control of things. And, and that's the way we are. But God, in this lesson, if you get nothing out of the study of the Exodus and the Advent movement, Be sure you pick up the piece that God was trying to help his people to learn trust and faith in him. And I I emphasize this thought because it was a it was a new thought to me. I, I had not realized that God was trying to help the children of Israel not have to fight with sword and spear but he was trying to help them to fight by trusting him. Now you can think of lots of different examples in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in which God has experiences with his people where they are ready to fight and they're coming up to a battle and they're all armed and they're all ready. But they say, Lord, what is it you want us to do? In one case, the Lord says, sing. (laughs) You know? Wait a minute, Lord. Sword, spear, shield, helmet, sing? (laughs) You know, it's that kind of thing that God does with them because when they think that they're going to get all this fighting done with a sword and they're going to get it all done that way, whatever, they begin to become self-trusting instead of trusting in God. But God had all the tools he needed to be able to fight for them if they would be just willing to learn that. And this was what part of the journey was really all about, was them learning to place faith in him. How did they get out of Egypt? With sword? They didn't have any. You know, that, this wasn't a... The, Moses had already tried that. And so when he tried the sword route, God said, no, Moses you are not yet ready for this job. (laughs) He said, okay, let's go out in the wilderness for 40 years and I'm going to teach you how to handle this. Now, you know what? He did not use the sword on his sheep. His sheep taught him that he needed to use other methods in order to be able to lead God's people. And finally, after 40 years of that education, God takes him back there, and this time he doesn't go hunting for some Egyptian who's beating a a slave and try to kill him with a sword. And, and, you know, after all, it's two of us now, Aaron, you and me, two swords instead of one. That wasn't really what was going on. So God is trying to help them to learn by faith. And uh, we read the passage from uh, Patriarchs and Prophets 247 and 392 there. I want to read it again. Uh, Again, I'm on page uh, 107, I believe, right? Is it 106? I don't know how it spills over. My notes, if you saw what I've been going through in some of this stuff, when I make notes, it does all kinds of stuff to the order. And so I've kept that that separate from you because when I put my notes on there, it starts messing everything up. So, okay, you said 106, right? Um, It was not God's will to deliver his people by warfare, as Moses thought, but by his own mighty power, that the glory might be ascribed to whom? Him alone. The Lord had never commanded them to go up and fight. It was not his purpose that they should gain the land by warfares, but by strict obedience to his commands. You know what? I'd read that before. I've read patriarchs and prophets several times. But going through this study has helped me to refocus that whole issue and what God is, is doing. I hope you're picking up on that and recognizing that this is a message. Really, this is a message of righteousness by faith, not of my ability to save myself, but righteousness through faith in Christ. So the children of Israel, in their journey, are actually entering a school. There's a lot of unlearning for them to do. Just as Moses had to unlearn things in the 40 years of the wilderness walk, so they also needed to learn and and unlearn what they needed to to, uh, experience. So in this journey, one of the first lessons they learn is when they approach the Red Sea. They have the enemy behind them and they have the Red Sea in front of them, certainly this is a moment when they are going to learn faith. They're going to learn trust. They're going to learn that God can solve all the obstacles that are there. Now, right away, their first reaction is not, okay, Lord, we'd like to see what you're going to do about this. The children of Israel's reaction was, All right, Moses, what'd you do? Bring us out here to kill us? And it's complaint and it's, you know, isn't that the way we are as human beings? We get upset. We get angry. We want to blame the pastor. We want to blame our neighbor. (laughs) We want want to blame somebody. And that's really what they were seeking to do. But by faith, they learned to, to trust the Lord in this experience. What is faith? Hebrews chapter 11. What does it tell us faith is? You got your Bibles? Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And let's be reminded of what faith is. I know you've read it before. It didn't come here to teach you anything new, it came here to remind you, put it all together in some kind of a package. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1, someone read that for me, please. Now faith is the
1: substance of things hoped for and evidence of things not seen.
0: Faith is the substance of things hoped for. You think the children of Israel were hoping there was a solution to their problem at the Red Sea? The evidence of things not seen. That's kind of a an interesting one in and of itself, isn't it?
1: Because you can't see it,
0: you're hoping the evidence. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I was in school, in uh, in academy, uh, one of the things that I had to learn um, was about the things I couldn't see. Uh, also, college. Now, when I got to college, I got really frustrated because I really liked biology, and I was there was a time in academy when I was thinking of going into medicine and pre-med. The Lord straightened me out and He got me headed in the right direction. And it was a good thing because I learned a real lesson in college. I'd already made the decision that God was leading me into ministry and I was following that call that, that He gave. <coughs> but He really made it clear to me when I got into college. Because in college I loved biology. That yeah, was enough to say, all right, medicine again, you know. It didn't do that to me, so I was already clear on where I was headed. But I loved biology. And there was kind of a desire in me to do something else, and that was to, to, uh, to combine ministry with a master's in public health. And my desire was to emphasize in nutrition. Now, I grew up in a home that my father and mother had uh, believed in the health message in a significant way. And I believed in it and still do believe in it, just to be clear, but I believed in it also and I thought, you know what, I'd really like to combine the two together. And I knew that in order to be able to uh, get a master's in public health, I was going to need a background in chemistry. Now, I had some chemistry in academy and it was just okay, but I got into college and I found out that chemistry was no joke <laughs> and that they, the, you know, the professors in college don't coddle you. You know, you either get it or you don't, and, and they're nice, and they're okay, not particularly the one that I was with. I think he was nicer than I thought he was, but I just wasn't getting it, and I'm telling you, I, I got into that, I got through that chemistry class. I think I got a C in that class. Uh, you know, I did okay in college, but that was not my favorite subject, nor my, my uh, ability there, and here's what I didn't like about it. What I didn't like about chemistry is they kept telling me about all these theories that they had. all right, And it was all about something they couldn't seem to see and they couldn't seem to understand. And, they, and we had to understand it all by trying to figure it out from various kinds of processes and tests and labs and, and all that kind of thing, and I could never see it or whatever, but I had to assume that they were right because of the result that came about. Well, You know, that's something like the evidence of things not seen. <laughs> all right? Now, I, chemistry is, is real stuff, and there's real chemicals, and, and it really does work that way, but my brain just wasn't calculating that very well. Does your brain calculate the evidence of not things well? you ever struggle with not being able to see and having to be trusting of God by faith that he's actually leading in that particular way? Well, this is what the children of Israel were faced with. They had a lot of lessons of faith to learn here. And God wants us to know that faith can also be learned a lot. That's what God wants us to do. So God brings them to the, to the Red Sea and they're complaining. And God, we talked about this yesterday, he got the pillar of fire and he handles all of that situation and then he parts the Red Sea and they go through it. God gives them the command to go forward. Now God's giving his people commands to go forward today, right? When God says go forward, He really means that. He really means go forward, even if it doesn't feel like that you can do that and you can see your way forward. You know, in the conference office, sometimes on a large scale, we see this challenge. One of them is, the Lord says, I want you to go forward with a gospel message. We want you to, I want you to teach the truth. I want you to get people out there knowing what the truth is, but sometimes it takes money and you don't have the money. And I'll tell you what, you know, as I've worked with uh, the administration here, they're very careful about how they handle the money. And at some point, you've got to ask yourself, how do you have fiscal responsibility and faith? Well, God combines those two together, and he knows how to do that. He knows how to take us to the edge and test us and then provide the money. Now, this is kind of where we are right now in Grand Rapids. In Grand Rapids, they have uh, an opportunity to buy a radio station. And the question that everybody's kind of asking right now is they just had a rally in the Grand Rapids area, the Holland Church. Were you there, Tom? I wasn't there, but I was you there. know what's going on? Yeah. Were you there, Dennis? Yeah. And so here, here we are. We get together. They want a million five for this radio station, million five three, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's what they want. And you know, some of us, when they first said that, we have bought some radios, we. Not we, the conference, but people have bought radio stations in various areas through, through the churches, have done it, raised the money. But usually those radio stations up in the upper part of Michigan have been $30,000, you know, $40,000, $70,000, something like that. And numbers that, that even I can comprehend a little bit, you know, that my salary's not, you know, whatever. But then they came to Lansing. And they said, we want to buy this station. It was $350,000. And I'm thinking, oh, wow. We be kind of 10 times what we paid for other radio stations. And, you know, I came into that situation and, and, and uh, people were starting to give money. And still, we we're getting coming up close to the deadline. And all of a sudden, you know, we're thinking, oh, where, where are we going to get the money for this, you know? And, and, uh, and the Lord moved on somebody's heart to provide that money. We didn't do it. We didn't know this person even had the money. But God knew. God moved on their heart. And the Lansing station was bought. And right about that time, this station in Grand Rapids becomes available. (laughs) $300,000 is like a joke. It's like a down payment. Now we're talking a million and a half dollars. We're saying, whoa, how are we going to do this? And then we go to a rally and, and you know, uh, we come there with, I don't know, $300,000 and we leave that place with $800,000 and we're all praising the Lord and and singing the doxology literally. You know, tears in our eyes realizing that God is moving and doing that. But we still don't have all the money yet. So we come to this rally and we're at uh, a million million two or something like that, right? Somewhere in that area. Still have like $300,000 to raise. And we just had this, this rally and there's still that money to go. And here we are at, at, on the borders of, the, of being able to buy this radio station, but we've got to have the, all the money by, by July 1. And so people are saying, all right, what are we going to do? Is somebody going to come in behind this? And how are we going to handle it? Do we do this? Do we do that? And, and some people simply said, look, let's trust the Lord. It's the Red Sea. The Lord. Does he have a million dollars? Sure he does. Does he have 300000 Sure, he'll take care of it. If it's what God wants to do, he's going to take care of it. So we've got to trust him. So the Red Sea is teaching us faith. You and I have a lot, of more, a lot more opportunities to learn faith today, and we need to be ready to trust him for that. These are tests. But when God says us to go forward, you go forward. That's why we put, we, they put the money down on that radio station and say, all right, Lord, you provided the opportunity. So far, you've been saying go forward, so we go forward. And that's what God expects of us. We're glad you're here. You're all right. We heard that you were out uh, spending money at the ABC or something. Anyway. (laughs) So our duty is to obey. And this is what God's trying to teach his people here. And it's a lesson you and I want to learn along the way. So there's a test of faith. God had the opportunity to... to. Uh to take them straight into the promised land. He could have. And he could have just cleared the path and said, look, just let's just go. And, and when they got uh, close to the Red Sea, he just parted it. And, and then they got in there, and then he just said, okay, let's keep going. And when they got to the borders of the Canaan land, he said, okay, go in. And, and no real instructions. He said, just, uh, you know, wait here a few minutes and, uh, and let's see what happens to uh, Jericho. And, we'll, and he says, all right, Jericho's taken care of. Okay, now you can go in. Did God do it that way? He always brings us to points along the way for there are lessons we need to learn and that's what he's trying to help us with. Even though there are other methods he could use, he chooses to teach us to learn the lessons by faith that we need to learn. He took them through on dry land to the, through the Red Sea and he brought them through to the other side and he's helping them to learn faith. 1844 brings us to a parallel time in the early Advent and the early Advent time that connects back to the time of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. God is trying to get his, ready for Canaan, his people ready for the heavenly Canaan land. And in 1844 was a difficult time for God's people because something happened. They came to the, uh, what they felt was the borders of the promised land. But it wasn't the borders of the promised land yet. They just assumed it was the borders of the heavenly promised land. God had been telling them to preach the message that Jesus was coming again. And so they did that. And as they came up to 1844 and they're preaching that message, instead of entering the promised land, they came to the border of the land and the door seemed to slam shut in their face. It was that great dis- disappointment mo- moment. And they were tested like the Hebrews were at the Red Sea. They felt like they were standing right there and the Red Sea was in front of them and the Egyptians were behind them. And they had just been they hey, they'd been released from, from Egypt. Boy, that was that was big deal all for this. The early Adventists were released from bondage to the to the idea of staying in the world forever, and that they, God was preparing them for the kingdom of heaven. And then, when they looks like they're just about to go in, the door slams. This was a good way that God was teaching His people to trust Him. That disappointment time was a time of learning if all the people who had worked to labor for the preparing of people for the second coming in 1844 had continued to trust the lord with the message that he was given god would have giving god would have been able to move his people much more quickly there were a lot of people who were believing in the return of jesus who, when that disappointment time came, they left, right? Yeah. You understand that? Yeah. Now you know in Adventist history, we we think back to this experience and we 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 understand from the history that um, God wanted to teach us a new lesson, but we don't often we don't often. Pause and realize that what God was doing at that moment was also clearing those out that were in it for something else. You know that the Jehovah's Witnesses came out of the Great Disappointment, right? No, I didn't know that. Jehovah's Witnesses came out of the Great Disappointment. And a lot of people that didn't try to find another movement like the Jehovah's Witnesses did, and that, you know, that's my, I mean, of course. I don't want to try to get in all the details of that, but a lot of people just went back to their churches. Those that had been Methodists went back to the Methodist churches. Those who had been Lutherans went back to the Lutheran church. And, and all of that kind of thing was going on with those people. So some just abandoned uh, the idea of the second coming of Christ entirely. Others incorporated it into a new movement like the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then there were those who simply quit Christianity entirely and gave up on God. But then there was the Seventh-day Adventist because it was the movement that God was trying to, to, to lead. You know, to people today will mock Seventh-day Adventists and say, huh, this idea of the heavenly sanctuary, yeah, 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 right. That's just your excuse for the great disappointment. And the fact is, you got it all wrong and you messed up, and it was and that's that's the reality. No, God was getting his people 's attention, and he was teaching them he was learning them, teaching them to learn faith, understand faith and that 's what we begin to see in this time now from here we 're going to move in to the subject of the sanctuary, so i don 't want to get bogged down too far, and as usual, the clock is uh, going to run on me, so i 'm going to keep moving ahead. But what is beginning to happen here? is God is trying to help them move past the first angel's message and the second angel's message into the third angel's message. Do you understand what I am say when I say that? Go to Revelation chapter 14, and we want to pick up this. Actually, let's go to Revelation 10 for a moment and pick up a few pieces here. Um, yeah, actually it is, but I'm trying to remember exactly where it's at. The Revelation 10 part may not be, um, I'll point it out to you in a minute. I'll point it out to you in a minute. Let's go to the Bible for a moment and then I'll, uh, I'll identify it. In Revelation chapter 10, um, we, sometimes we talk about this in an Unlock Revelation seminar and sometimes we don't get into the detail of, of this. It kind of depends. But most Seventh-day Adventists have, uh, have an understanding and understand that Revelation chapter 10 is a prediction, a prophecy that directly connects with 1844's Great Disappointment, okay? And this is how you see it. I'm going to read a few parts of this. In Revelation 10 verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven clothed with cloud, and a rainbow was on his head, and his face was like the sun, his feet like a pillars of fire. And he little had a little book open in his hand, and he set uh, his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered, and do not write them. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, uh, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, the sea and the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he was about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished and he declared, as he declared to his servants, the prophet's So here you have a picture. John is seeing this, and he's seeing uh, uh, an angel who has this little book that is open. And then in verse 8, the voice he hears, he hears a voice that says from heaven, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said, Take it and eat it, it will make your stomach bitter but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And he said to me, You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. Our understanding of this is this is the book of Daniel. And God its people are coming to an understanding of this prophetic book. Amazing things are happening. Remember, this is a book that was sealed, Right? When you go to Daniel and you look there, you find in those prophecies, he, God, uh, the, um, the angel keeps telling Daniel, seal it until the time of the end. Seal it until the time of the end. When you come to the book of Revelation, you don't see that happening, right? In the book of Revelation, these prophecies are given and uh, reiterated and connections back to the book of Daniel, but nowhere in the book of Revelation does it say, see it well. I shouldn't say nowhere. <laughs> but uh, not in relationship to those prophecies because God now wants to unseal these prophecies so that his people can begin to understand them. And what begins to happen in in the early 1800s is you have people like William Miller who are now beginning to understand the book of Daniel, which, by the way, he wasn't the first one who understood those things. Yes, in relationship to the sanctuary in terms of teaching it as being the second coming of Jesus, the Reformers hadn't done that back in the Reformation, but during the Reformation, those people had begun to understand that the beast of Daniel and the beast of Revelation was the Roman Catholic Church. They understood that, and they taught that. And so did, um, so did people like uh, John Wesley. They understood these issues. They recognized. That's what's so tragic about today. The whole Protestant movement centered around the Word of God and their understanding of where Roman Catholicism fit into that picture. And today, Protestantism, Protestantism has lost that focus entirely. So much so that in, 15, and in 17, 17, what year is this? In 2017, who is going to be standing? at the door of the Wittenberg Church on October 31. It is going to be the Pope. Is going to be standing there. Where 500 years ago, it was Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was saying, this is the problem with the church. And today... Protestantism and Roman Catholicism are going to turn their back on that whole Protestant Reformation process. Are we living in the last days?
1: Yes. We are. The
0: Church united. Oh, they're not the only ones. In the last, in the last month or so, the United Methodists have joined together with Catholicism. Yeah. They've established an office in the Vatican, uh, an ecumenical office there for, for a connection and all that, but they're showing that they're willing to consider being connected with them. The Lutherans have long since done this, and, and on and on the story goes for what's happening. Well, got off on that a little bit. The little book there that was the book of Daniel And this was establishing, um, this was the early Adventist church, the early Adventists, not Seventh-day Adventists, the early Adventists, looking at the second coming of Jesus, and they encountered uh, a misunderstanding because William Miller thought that this was the uh, cleansing of the sanctuary, was the cleansing of the earth by fire, and that that would be all of it. That's where they got into that whole situation, the great, bitter disappointment. Now, when you go to Revelation 14, and this is where I wanted to lead you. I just want to give you that that backup piece here. and It's in in these notes woven in, and I'm not going in the same order at the moment. In Revelation 14, in verse 6, you find the first angel's message. Now, you all know about that, right? Uh, The gospel, the judgment, the Sabbath, all in there. Now, these kinds of things were all coming to light in the early 1800s. The Sabbath didn't come into a little later, after the bitter disappointment. But the first angel's message gets into these things. And the second angel's message is Babylon has fallen, Babylon has fallen. And that message is there. Um, That comes a little bit later after 1844 and God's people are preaching about the the fall of uh, Babylon and so on and so forth and bringing back some of the things that the reformers brought up as well. But then in verse 9, then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, etc., etc. Now here's my point. I'm not going to go into all of that, but here's my point. When the early Adventists in the early 1800s were studying the sanctuary message and coming back to an understanding of what God was doing in the heavenly sanctuary, they did get confused on the cleansing of the sanctuary, but they did understand the 2300 days, correct? That's how they came to the conclusion it was 1844. This was part of that three angels, the first angels' message experience. God is you. This is the first angel accomplishing his work. It gets continued on. And when the bitter disappointment comes, the work is not yet done, correct? The first angel's message is not yet finished. The second angel's message has not been preached. The third angel's message has not been preached yet. So when you come to the 1844 experience and that bitter disappointment, and the angel said in chapter 10, And verse 11, you must prophesy again about many people's nations, tongues, and kings. God was saying there, yes, you've got the message from Daniel, the 2300-day message. You understand the 2300 days, and it was ending in 1844, but you're not done yet. You've still got to do it. It was it was sweet in your mouth. That experience was sweet. Those people thought on, uh, on uh, October 22 that Jesus was coming and it was sweet, sweet, sweet. They'd, they'd sold everything. They'd quit, left the potatoes in the field. They'd, they'd done all those kinds of things and they were there waiting for Jesus to come. It was sweet. He was just about to return. And then he didn't. It wasn't sweet anymore. Because now the newspapers in those days, I mean, the newspapers are challenging today, but they don't pay as much attention to religious things as they used to. But you know they still do. There are newspapers out in California who love to watch Adventists and pick on Adventists. The Los Angeles Times is one of them, and there are others as well. And and every time these kinds of things happen, well, it did happen, and the news had it, and people, neighbors were making fun of them. Oh, you don't even have any potatoes anymore. You let them rot in the field. And all that kind of thing. And that's what led to the split, people going back to the churches and the Adventist church. They needed to learn along the way. This was a test of faith. So as the children of Israel got to the Red Sea and had a test of faith, God's people in the early Adventists got to the time of 1844 and the expected return of Jesus and had a real test of faith. What does this have to do with the message of righteousness by faith? Because God is still trying to teach his people to trust him. Isn't that what God was doing with the, Egypt, I mean, with the uh, Israelites? Yep. He was trying to teach them to trust him. Had they learned to trust him? Not yet. I mean, we know that they hadn't learned to trust him. Why? Because they gave up right at the Red Sea. They had just gotten out in an amazing delivery, and they get to the Red Sea, and they're ready to throw up their hands already. And we know as we continue the journey, it's the same old story again and again and again. So God is trying to teach them a message. Now, you know that Ellen White makes the statement that the three angels, third angel's message is the message of righteousness by faith in verity. You, have you heard that statement? How many of you have heard that statement before? Okay, good. When you look at that message, the third angel's message in Revelation 14, we just read that and read it all the way through. Just like the children of Israel weren't picking that up at the Red Sea, God's people weren't picking it up yet in 1844. They weren't realizing that God needed them to learn to trust Him. And we're still in that boat, that we need to not only learn to trust Him in terms of um, you know, when it comes to money and needing to buy a radio station, the most important thing we need to learn to trust Him in is in our own personal salvation. And in the dealing with the issues in our lives that, that need to be dealt with, and the control that he has over our, that he wants to have over our lives. So as we come to the children of Israel, and they come to this whole issue of entering the promised land, I'm now on probably page 108 or nine. I don't know exactly what it is. It's a quotation from Great Controversy is just before the Lord's plan. Is that where I'm at? Yeah, it's where I'm at. Um, is it 109? great I'm sorry that I don't have that straight and I wish it was it would be a lot easier for me but I, you're finding it there's a quotation there in which she says it was not the will of God that Israel should wander 40 years in the wilderness he desired to lead them directly to the land of Canaan and establish them there a holy happy people but they could not enter because of what? unbelief it was because of their backsliding and their apostasy. It was because of these issues that, uh, that they had in their lives. God could not help them. Unbelief was separating them from God. God had a plan. He wanted to work with them, but he couldn't work with them until their faith began to come along with their experience and to be able to help them. Unbelief was the challenge for God's people uh, in the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. Unbelief was the challenge for God's people coming out of the world and getting ready for the return of Jesus in the 1800s. It was unbelief, an untrusting experience that they had not ready to trust in God. Yeah, I hate to say it, but you're right continuing the parallel with what we have today. I'm now on my notes at the top of 109. What is it, 110? What is it, what is the first His first sentence says, As they refused to do the work which he uh, had appointed time. Them? 109? Okay, good. Others were raised up to proclaim the message. In mercy to the Lord, Jesus delays his coming, that sinners may have an opportunity to hear the warning and find in him a shelter before the wrath of God shall be poured out. So God uses his people's lack of faith as an opportunity to help save the world. That's how it is. So, but here's what I don't want you to get. I don't want you to get the idea that our lack of faith is what God has to use to do this. God can, God can use our faith as a way to reach people too, right? So we don't have to be have a lack of faith and say, okay, i got an excuse for my lack of faith. No, let's not do that. That's not a good idea. That's not what's happening here. Now, the uh, author Taylor G. Bunch gives a lot of other op- uh, examples here of... Um, Exhibitions of Faith, and he quotes there from Hebrews 11:29 and 30, and, and uh, points that out, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But he does point out that the early reign of the Advent movement and it's evident that the Lord intended that it should swell into the loud cry, unto the latter rain, which will close God's work in the heavenly sanctuary and His work on earth. It was that experience that God wanted them to have. Just as God wanted to be able to work more quickly with the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, but couldn't because of their lack of faith. God wanted to do the same thing with the children, uh, with the people of God, in the early Advent movement, but because of their lack of faith, he couldn't move as quickly as he wanted to. Now, let me go back and make sure that part of it's clear. Imagine what would have happened in 1844 if they had come to that moment on October 22. And I don't know how many people it was that were actually preparing for that, but we know that in the United States, that there was a large group of people, maybe it was 50,000 people. I don't know exactly what the number was, but there were people in the other places in the world as well, Remember that in in Sweden the children were preaching right because the adults couldn't couldn't preach and there were uh, there were other uh, people like a wolf who were preaching in other places in the world and and he was a uh, Jew that had accepted the second coming of christ and and they were preaching all over the world there were lots of people waiting for Jesus to come on october twenty two Now what would have happened if all those people who came to midnight of October 22 and 1201, October 23, it said, God's still in control. Let's keep going with this. Let's trust Him. But what happened? Only a handful of people trust Him at that moment. See, God would have been able to take those people and move mightily and and that early rain experience could have then swelled into the latter rain experience. And that's what What he's pointing out here in in helping us to understand what could have happened. Okay, it didn't happen that way. So let's figure out what God was trying to help us to do in that point. I'm at the bottom of page 109. I'm not sure it's that way with yours, but it's a quotation again from Great Controversy, page 611. It says the Advent movement of 1840 to 44 was a glorious manifestation of the power of God. The first angel's message was carried to every mission station in the world. And in some countries, there was the greatest religious interest that had been witnessed in any land since the Reformation of the 16th century. But these are to be exceeded by the mighty movement under the last warning of the third angel. God wasn't done with his work yet. He could have accelerated his work, but God still wasn't done with his work. And that's where you and I come into this this movement. All right. I'm going to move on out of that. The Red Sea to to Sinai. You see that section? And uh, historical evidence, other records, Eusebius account. Those are all sections there. You see that? I'm moving right on past that. I will simply... uh, Uh, tell you that, you know, we know as much as we can know at the moment about those things that actually happened, and that's just a little bit of what he's testifying to uh, and all. But I want to move into chapter 17, which is the law and the sanctuary, because this is a very important stepping stone to catching the main points of this study. So now I'm looking at the experience of the bitter waters And I'm in chapter 17, and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 15. You with me? Go to Exodus 15, please. And I'd like to, uh, I've done my share of the reading now. It's time to share a little bit of the reading, get us all involved. Exodus chapter 15, and we're going to read verses 22 to 27. I'd like to have uh, you read, and let's have one person read verse 22, another one verse 23, until we get through 27. So, someone read verse 22, please.
1: So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water.
0: Okay. Someone else, 23. Now when they came to McMorah, they could not uh, drink the water of Mara,
1: for they for uh, they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it uh, was called.
0: Okay, someone, verse twenty-four.
1: And the people complained against Moses, saying, "What shall we drink?"
0: Ah, oh, that's too short. Read twenty-five.
1: So he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him the tree. And he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet who may assume to the
0: ordinance for them and their tested. What did He do Do you see God doing that all along the way? Mm-hmm. God is constantly testing people because the testing experience leads to greater faith. I don't like testing. I never liked testing in school <laughs> All right. You probably didn't either unless you were one of those ace students who just didn't even have to study and it was kind of a joke to you, but... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> testing is not fun, but it does produce growth. And God uses testing here. Verse 26. Someone read verse
1: 26. And said, It said, If thou wilt diligently harden to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandment and keep his stature. I will put none of these diseases upon the Egyptians thee which I have brought unto the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth
0: thee. Great. And someone else, verse 27.
1: And they came to Elam, where there were 12,000 martyrs, three store and ten countries, and they encamped their blood of
0: So God's testing His people by this experience. Another connection also to the children of, I mean, to the early Adventists in relationship to 1844. It was a bitter experience, bitter waters, bitter book, Revelation chapter 10. And here's where you see, by the way, Revelation chapter 10. I told you we'd connect with it. It's right at the end of that paragraph. It marks that. And that first paragraph in chapter 17, and it quotes from Revelation 10, 8 to 11, and 11 verse 1. So there's bitter waters are changed to sweet, what began to change the bitter waters of 1844 to sweet? What doctrine was it? Sanctuary. It was the sanctuary doctrine that began to change that. As the children of Israel marched out from the Red Sea and came to this experience of Marah, they were on their way to Mount Sinai. And all during this, this experience, this journey that the children of Israel are having, God is about to use the opportunities to do a lot of teaching to His people. And one of the things that they got to learn about was the sanctuary. I'm telling you, they really got to learn about it. They got got to build a real sanctuary, the real sanctuary. I mean, this was quite a sanctuary. Yes, it was a tent, but this was not just any ordinary tent. Because when they got done building that sanctuary, God came down and lived in it. Wow, what a lesson was going on there. And as you study into the sanctuary, and he points this out in the next paragraph, that the plan of salvation was demonstrated by the sanctuary. But in order for them to be able to understand the sanctuary message and that plan of salvation, he also had to make sure they understood the law. So as they come to Mount Sinai, he teaches them about the law and he introduces them to the law. And then he introduces them to the sanctuary. And the parallels here are interesting and let's see what we can learn from them. Going now, I'm on page 114. Mine, is it yours? Let me see just see how it looks here on yours. Okay, go down to the next page, and what is there? And I'm going to look at Mount of the Law, top of the page. Look at that. We're together. We're good. All right. He has some interesting facts and interesting points about the the mountain. It's a granite peak. It's about seventy-three hundred feet high. Well, you know that's a pretty good sized mountain. You know, it's not the Rocky Mountains by any means, but it's still a high mountain. Um. And then he talks about the the description of what Mount Sinai and the area around it was. It was an ideal place for people to camp and for him to be able to, God, to be able to spend time with his people, helping them to understand the truths that he needed them to understand. He points out that this was a place with which Moses was familiar because he had kept his sheep in a lot of these places out there as he wandered as a shepherd over those 40 years. And this was uh, something that, uh, that he had done. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, at the end of that paragraph, this is uh, the verse that's quoted. It says, when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God upon this mountain. This is Exodus chapter 3, right? This is pre out of Egypt experience. So God has told him here, we know Moses uh, was there. This is where he encountered God And God says, I'm going to bring you back here. And when I bring you back here, this is what you're going to do. You are going to serve God on on this mountain. And so here he gives the law. In Exodus chapter 19, turn to Exodus 19. I don't have time to go through all of that, but I want to uh, just get to that point so you get a point of reference visually, point of reference. That was kind of a prophecy and an affirmation for Moses. Exactly. And Moses, in essence, Moses knew where we were going. Now, you know what? The Bible doesn't tell us how he got from where he was out in the wilderness because he was in this area, how he got back to Egypt. I don't know if he had a boat to get across the sea. I don't know if he went around. I don't know how he got there. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us any of that. But this is a place that Moses was familiar with, and he had walked all the way back to Egypt. So it's not like this was all strange territory to this man. And he knew what to expect of these places, but the people didn't, and they hadn't learned to trust him by any means. They didn't trust God, let alone him, so that was part of the challenge. But in Exodus 19, verses 14... Uh, to 25, is the recounting of the uh, story um, of them coming there to Mount Sinai. And in verse 14, it says, Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified people, and they washed their robes. He points out, as in he, um, Taylor G. Bunch, that they were there for three days getting ready for God to give them the commandments. God needed their hearts to be ready for what he was going to share with them. Because what's happening here is a spiritual experience. This is just not God communicating Ten Commandments. God is doing more than that. And this is the part I really want us to catch today that Taylor G. Bunch is bringing out in the study. And that is what God is doing to their hearts here. This is that first covenant, covenant, old covenant, new covenant connection, experience that's happening here. Because as he brings them to Mount Sinai and he prepares their hearts and has them wash their clothes and and confess their sins and he warns them don't come up to the mountain and all that, they're coming to a holy God. And now he's going to give them the law, the Ten Commandment law. And as he does this, they are brought face to face with, are we going to serve God? And then they decide, yeah, yeah, I, I think we'll serve this God, absolutely. The mountain's shaking, the mountain's on fire, yeah, we're going to serve this God, yeah, uh-huh. absolutely, who, who would not say yes, yeah, right, we get it. And that's where God is teaching his people. I catch again the message of righteousness by faith here, because God asks, wants them to be obedient, and they say, sure, we'll be obedient. But they haven't learned yet that they can't be obedient. They haven't figured it out. And that's part of what this journey is in this situation. There is a quotation from Patriarchs and Prophets right under that section, the giving of the law. And it begins, Christ was not only the leader of the Hebrews. See that paragraph? Christ was not only the leader of the Hebrews in the wilderness, the angel in whom was the name of Jehovah, and who, veiled in the cloudy pillar, went before the host. But it was he who gave the law to Israel. Amid the awful glory of Sinai, Christ declared in the hearing of all the people the ten precepts of his father's law. It was he who gave to Moses the law engraved upon the tables of stone. Jesus... The Christ, the Savior, is the one who is there. But there is this experience happening that we must not miss out on. Now, an interesting quotation from Adam Clark, Clark, who was not an Adventist, by the way, but he suggests that the law was spoken on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know exactly uh, where he's getting all of that, but he's being quoted here by Taylor G. Bunch, and I find that very interesting. The modern world today also needs to be able to understand what God is trying to bring about. God is trying to help us to understand the truth of his law. The modern world needs the law of God, right? This is a day and age when the law of God is being just ignored. And there's a battle, not only in the Adventist church, but there's a battle in in, uh, the United States over this issue. I mean, how about the judge who gets kicked out because he wants to keep the Ten Commandment law there? You know there, there, there are all those kinds of things that are out there, and the world is struggling. the world around you and me is struggling today over this whole issue of the law and we 're dealing with the whole homosexual agenda and all of those kinds of things that are that are going on and and people today want to make sure that there is no gender that 's that those are the real challenges we have and and why are we even having this problem we 're having this problem because God has not been honored by obedience to his law. The the people who claim to be Christians and yet are saying the law doesn't exist anymore. Those individuals who have turned their back on the law are paying the price for it today because we are reaping in this world what has been sown. The law has been rejected. God had to bring his people back to the law. God is trying to bring people back to the law today. That's why we do Revelation seminars. We want people not just to know about the law, but we want people to know the God of the law. But what we don't want to miss is what God is doing here at Mount Sinai as well in the sanctuary message and being able to handle that kind of situation. We don't earn salvation, but we honor Jesus by obedience to his law, right? I remember um, an evangelistic meeting I did not too terribly long ago. There was a mother and daughter in that series who had come face to face with the Ten Commandment law and with God, what God wanted them to do. And I remember the young lady who had to make a decision about whether to participate in sports or not. And she made the decision to be faithful to God. I was tremendously impressed by that. By the way, her mother's sitting right over here. God has a way of bringing us back to the truth. How was your daughter doing? Doing all right? Good. God is good to us, but He also doesn't want us to come up short on knowledge and truth. The Sabbath is, is God's way of helping us to understand. We talked about the righteousness by faith aspect of the sanctification experience of the Sabbath. But in the sanctuary, God had to get He He had to get to the law before He could get to the sanctuary. Does that make sense? He had to help them to understand this because when he brings them to the law, he says to them, will you obey me? Yes, we'll obey you. And then moments later, they fail. The sanctuary message becomes an opportunity for them to learn what the plan of salvation is all about. So as we go a little farther here um, with the law... By the way, when it talks about the reign of the law, that section, what Taylor G. Bunch is trying to do is just helping us realize that the law goes forever. It reigns forever, but it's not our source of salvation. And he's reminding us of the fact that the world has wandered away from that and is trying to get away from that. But now I'm on page 116, and the top of that page, he makes the statement... Um, does your page begin Revealed the Way of Escape from Sin? Okay, good. Three lines down, third line down there, it says, It revealed to them how the law could be transformed from the tables of stone to the fleshy tables of the heart to become the ruling principles of their lives. The law and the gospel were both given to Israel at the Mount of God. The law to reveal to them their sins and the gospel to take away their sins and free them from the sentence of eternal death. And how did he do that? He does that through the sanctuary message. The righteousness of Christ, that section, go down to that one there. I'm going to skip the law and grace section. You can do that. But then he says, The Lord entered into the old covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai in order to teach them the impossibility of man's attaining to righteousness by obedience to the law written on stone. This was necessary before they were willing to enter into the new covenant established upon better promises, which write the same law in the heart and mind. Obedience to the law is righteousness for all they, um, they command, what in the world? For all they commandments are right. all the commandments are righteousness. Sorry, there's a Y in there that shouldn't be in there. Are righteousness. But human obedience to a law written only on stone is self-righteousness and is insufficient to give salvation. The Advent message had the same challenge. The Adventists needed to also learn the truth of both the law and grace. And Mount Sinai was an opportunity for that to be learned. First, you and I tend to learn best by our mistakes, don't we? I hate to say it, but I learn best by my mistakes. I wish I didn't have to make mistakes to learn, but I do have a way of learning it. Even though I might catch the lesson on the first go around, when I make a mistake along the way, say, "Now understand how important that lesson really was. In the Advent movement, the Lord might have, uh, the Lord might have finished his work during the Great Reformation, had his people discovered and walked in all the light. More light was needed to prepare them to enter all the light. More light was needed to prepare them to enter the heavenly Canaan. But the Reformation came to a standstill and they formed their creeds and refused to advance in revealed truth. Then came the message of the second advent with its greater light and attended by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the 1844 movement. But still the people of God were not not, all the way back to the faith and practice of the apostolic church you see the progression that he's tying in here? He's helping us to understand that even in the Reformation, there were great and wonderful things that could have been done if God's people had been willing to follow. But there were still lessons that needed to be learned and the Reformation stalled out because what happened in the Reformation, people started to bog down in the truth that Luther taught, the bog down in the truth that Calvin taught or that Wesley taught instead of continuing to progress as God wanted them to. So he comes to the Advent movement, and he begins to move them still farther in, into the understanding of the truth that he needed to grasp. More light was needed there. This truth had to be revealed. The Daniel 8, 8 and 9 experience he refers to there, um, and the the 1844 experience, the when the continual ministration of Christ in the sanctuary would be made known. You know, the sad thing is today, there's only one, set, one church, one denomination in the Christian world today that believes in the sanctuary message. Only one. It's clearly a biblical truth. I mean, it's, it's so pervasive in the Bible that if you miss it, you've got to be blind. That that's part of the problem, isn't it? It not only was in the Old Testament, but it works its way all the way through to the end of the Bible. In the Book of Revelation, the, the Book of Revelation is filled with sanctuary image. When you go into Chapter One of Chapter Revelation uh, of the Book of Revelation, what happens in first part of revel uh, in the first part of the Book of Revelation? The angel um, speaks to to uh, to John. And then he sees Jesus wandering among the candlesticks. What's that? That's sanctuary imagery, isn't it? It's that whole thing going all the way through. And people say, well, there's no sanctuary. Or you're just making... How has the devil confused the world, right? Well, the children of Israel could have had that same confusion. But God was trying to help them and lead them to that. In the section, the discovery, are you with me still? Still? In the section of the discovery, page 117, as a result of the disappointment, the long lost and hidden truths concerning the law and the sanctuary were uncovered and brought to light. You see, the children of Israel in coming to Mount Sinai were brought back to the law and to the sanctuary. In the early Adventist church, the people were brought back to the law and to the sanctuary. You see the connections? And that's what God is seeking to be able to do. Now, I mark this really highlighted, and maybe you'll want to do the same thing because I wanted to make sure I said this to you and you get the point. I'm at the bottom of page 117. There's the last couple of sentences there, and it says, They were led to the mount of the law for a vision of the majesty and glory of the character of God. And then through the sanctuary light, they were brought to Calvary to have their sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. Did you catch that? Yes, sir. Isn't it easy for us as Seventh-day Adventists to place all the emphasis on the law? Is it wrong for us to place an emphasis on the law? No, it's not wrong for us to place an emphasis on the law. Cuz God did it at Mount Sinai. But God didn't stop there, neither should we. So we should also place an emphasis on the sanctuary. And what is the sanctuary teaching us? It is teaching us that we are saved by Christ's righteousness is washing away our sins by the blood of his death on the cross. So again, this message that you and I are, are going through here in our study of the children of Israel leaving Egypt and going to the promised land is coming back to us as the people in the Time of the Advent, preparing for the return of Jesus and recognizing it's the same experience. Jesus is trying to help us to understand that we are going to be saved by faith in Him and by no other way. We're going to, that's one of the tragedies of the movement where people uh, who believe in the rapture and that whole doctrine. Are going to miss out on learning how to trust God because they think God is going to simply transport them from Egypt to the promised land, right yeah. they, that's, they believe that they 're not going to have to go through any of that experience they 're not going to have to go through any of that they 're going to be taken out of that and instead, what God really is going to do for his people is test them to the point that they 're actually ready for that experience yeah. and they 're going to do it by learning to trust Him so completely that even Satan and all his forces cannot convince them to do otherwise. Right? All right, you were going to make a comment? And then to... They
1: think they're going to be gone by the fourth chapter of Revelation. I'm sorry? They think they're going to be gone yeah. by the fourth chapter of Revelation. But what I was going to say was, in the book of Matthew, Jesus mm-hmm. said, I come here to fulfill prophecies, not to change the law. Mm-hmm. So it still was in play from there all the way
0: through. Exactly. But to you and me, it's plain. To others, it's a source of argument. (laughs) So anyway, an interesting statement. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but a revelation of Christ in that section. It's from uh, volume five of the commentary, page 575. And uh, she makes some uh, really uh, um, uh, powerful uh, uh, allusions there and connections there. And I'm just going to simply summarize that last part where uh, Taylor G. Bunch says, If the Israelites had learned the lessons of the sanctuary and its services, they would have been led directly into the promised land. If the the Advent people had received the experience of righteousness by faith as taught by the sanctuary and its services, they would have quickly entered the heavenly land. That's the bottom line, isn't it? That's exactly what would happen. Tomorrow we're going to conclude our study because unfortunately we're running out of time. We will conclude our study by, tomorrow by taking a look at a couple of chapters. First of all, chapter 18, uh, the rebellion at Kadesh Barnea, and it takes us from what we just looked at into the children of Israel coming to Kadesh Barnea and how God wanted to lead them into the promised land, but because of their lack of faith, they weren't able to do it, and we'll see the parallels and the connections to our own time. We'll talk more about it. It's a great place to move on. Pardon me? Bring that one back again because we're going to pick up from there. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, actually you are. I have one more for you to give. I hope I get time to get into it. If I don't, I want to make sure that you go home with it. And then you'll get the full set later. Those of you who are new today, don't forget, I need to get your name and address on here so that I can... uh, so that I can make sure that you get it. Even if you can't get back here tomorrow and and all, I know how that is. Make sure I have that and I'll send you the whole thing and you can study it on your own. Let's have a prayer together uh, and I'll let you go. Thank you, Lord, for being with us in our study again today. Thank you for Jesus who died on the cross for us. Thank you for the law that helps us to understand that you are in control of this world and that you really do want us to be obedient to you. Thank you for the sanctuary that teaches us that even though we can't be obedient, that we can trust in you completely, and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So Lord, as we go from here, may we go with peace in our hearts, and may we have the blessing of the rest of this day in your presence, in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more.